That's an interesting question, isn't it? Can Jesus still be first in Christmas? I think the question is important whether or not Jesus can still be first in Christmas because my own cravings really threaten Christmas. Whether it's the, uh, shh, don't tell anyone. Whether it's the Amazon Kindle Fire that I secretly crave. Or it's my mom's fudge that I certainly want. And it really wants me. It wants me so much it wants to stick with me until about July 4th. Whether it's, whether it's programs and concerts at school. I thank the Lord I've been delivered and my kids are just kidding. Just kidding. I like doing them. I like going to them. Not enough that I volunteer to go on my own when I don't have kids in them. Parties and all of those kinds of things. Work parties and family parties and all of those things which become a part of our Christmas season. Even though they are supposed to celebrate Christmas, when you have gone to your fourth party, do you ever stop and say, how is this really celebrating Christ? When I have to go sit with Mavis who works at the front counter and gets drunk on eggnog before we even start the meal, how is this? Our Christmas cravings seem to threaten the spirit of Christmas. They threaten what Christmas is all about. Christmas goodies threaten more than my waistline and fudge threatens to divert my cravings. And oh, how I crave my mom's fudge. Without nuts, please. Just pure, decadent fudge. I grew up saying little rhymes in Christmas programs. Maybe you did too. You know, things that we would never say in general, but we put some kid up there and and they're really cute. And at the end we say, oh, they're wonderful. And then I got patted on the head. I mean, I had to. I was the pastor's kid. You have to pat the pastor's kid on the head when he's this little, especially when there were only about seven kids in the church and three of us were pastor's kids. Once a year, I would uh, we would take part in this ritual. One year, the teenagers in the church did this play, and I got to be part of it. I was the son of the innkeeper. I had like four lines, but I thought I was really important. I was the son of the innkeeper who turned Jesus and uh, sorry Mary and Joseph away at the inn. My name was Barabbas. I'm not making that up. Then one year, I got a new train that went around in a circle about this big. I was so excited to have this this battery-operated train. I have no idea what I said that year in the Christmas program. I just know my train went round and round. One year, I got walkie-talkies. What boy who's eight doesn't live for walkie-talkies? What are you going to do with them? I don't know. I'm going to be cool. I'm going to have one here when someone else is over there. And we're going to say, can you hear me? I can see your lips moving, but I can't hear anything. Oh, I need to push a button. How wonderful. It was kind of like watching my mom learn to text. There was nothing wrong with either gift, either the train or the walkie-talkies. But I can tell you that my cravings threaten Cravings threaten my ability to truly celebrate Christmas because I have no idea what my little rhyme was in those years. And I have no idea what part I played in the Christmas program those years. And I don't remember much about those years other than the gifts that I got. And the fact that I would dwell on the gifts that I get at Christmas time or that all of those other cravings seem to threaten Christmas. 
And sometimes our worship is eclipsed by our Christmas cravings and we make Christmas more about those special things we get at that time of the year and less about worship and those kinds of things. The fact that I would crave that threatens my ability to really celebrate Christmas. Can Jesus really be first in Christmas? Can Jesus really change how I give? That's a question we'll answer next week. Can Jesus really be found in the Christmas chaos? That's a question we'll answer in our third week. This week we have to ask ourselves and really turn ourselves inward for just a moment and ask, in spite of all of my cravings at Christmas time, can I still put Jesus first? Just for a moment, look at someone next to you and tell them that one food you have to have in the next month. That one food you absolutely have to eat. Maybe it's a fruitcake. I doubt it. Just for a moment, look, tell them it's fudge. I'm telling you, it's fudge. My mom won't say that, but it is fudge. Take your Bibles, please, and turn with me to the book of Matthew, chapter number 2. In Matthew, chapter number 2, you discover, we discover that human cravings threaten Jesus. Not only do our own cravings threaten Christmas, but... That was the case at the very first beginning of Christmas when Jesus came into this world. Matthew chapter number 2, because the wise men went to worship Jesus. And we get that story there in Matthew 2. Magi from the east. Who are they? Where were they? Aren't you glad you have a Ph.D. to look you in the eye and tell you the answer to that question? Don't know? Don't care. Matthew chapter number 2, wise men from the east, magi, whatever you want to call them. I'm just going to include all those names so someone after service doesn't tap me right here and say, they're not really, no, 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 I know all of that. I did the Greek this last week. I don't. It's a lot of speculation about them. It's all fascinating. It's all also very irrelevant. What did they bring? They brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh. How much? Don't know. Doesn't matter. Not important. Matthew told us everything he wanted us to know. And he did so in a very ancient storytelling way. It's an ancient method of telling stories that's still around in sitcoms and in movies and television and everywhere still today where you put two different things side by side. You never really say they are compared. You just allow the fact, the presence of these two characters to be a contrast that we then understand. And one, by being bad, makes the other one look so much more virtuous. And so we get wise men from the east who look so much better and more virtuous because side by side, there they are with King Herod who wants to kill Jesus. And so the Magi brought their gifts. They knew that there was a king who was born because they saw the star. Again, a lot of speculation, a lot of irrelevant questions about what the star was. Why do I say irrelevant? Because none of it matters. What really matters is that the wise men came from the east to worship Jesus. And I want to keep my eye on that prize this morning. They appear in the story because they are supposed to contrast Herod, who did not wish to worship, and point that the truth of Christianity and the truth of Christmas and all of our human cravings is supposed to be found in worship and not in anything else. They appear because they were bringing gifts to offer Jesus, and they did so in worship. Herod, on the other hand, having heard that there was a king who was born in Israel, 
and that some had come from far away to worship him. Imagine what that was like. Here is this baby, and he didn't know anything about the baby. He hadn't heard anything about the baby at all before until these men came and said, Did you know a king has been born here in your ruling, in your rule dumb kingdom? It wasn't really a kingdom, but right here in Jerusalem. Did you know that? Imagine being Herod thinking, Because all those guys have a beard. Hmm. That's very interesting. That's pastor speak for, I think you're crazy. Hmm, you're, that's very interesting. Tell me more. I'm very curious about this king. Tell me because I would like to go and worship the king too. And so he gathered information and he discovered when the king had been born. And just to be on the safe side, I doubt that it was two years earlier. That seems really far-fetched. You could have walked from China to, to Jerusalem in two years. It's hard to believe that it was two years later. It's probably more like nine months later. But just to be on the safe side, he said, uh, every baby boy who's under the age of two in that area, let's kill them all. And the cravings of the king threatened the first anniversary of the birth of Jesus. Because human cravings are like that. Herod did not wish to worship Jesus, even though he said he did. He wanted to kill the baby. He wanted to have fame and fortune. So he decided that his own cravings were more important than what Jesus was there for. He decided that his own cravings were worth that kind of an effort. For fame, for glory, for the cravings of power, for the cravings of a lasting name. And the governors in Rome had great power and they were very greedy response was to threaten Jesus and to say, I think I can get rid of this nonsense right here and right now. The first Christmas was threatened by human cravings. And the contrast between the human cravings of Herod and the cravings, the desires to worship found in the wise men is unmistakable. One said, I will take my cravings and I will turn them toward Jesus in worship. And one said, I will take my cravings and I will threaten the existence of Christmas, of the Christ, of Jesus. There's a principle there. I think the principle is that our worship threatens our cravings. Because that's what we find here when the wise men rejected all of those human cravings instead and said, instead of fulfilling those cravings, we are going to go and worship. Instead of following through on my cravings for everything else that might be a part of the Christmas season, I'm going to redirect that to worship. And that's the picture that Matthew wanted us to get. That's what we ought to see here in this story. And that's what we should understand this morning, that your worship threatens your cravings. Well, if that's really true, Pastor Bruce, shouldn't that be found somewhere a little bit more readily noticeable in Scripture? Sure, how about Psalm 95? Which is in two different parts which seem to not really go together at all, yet we know it's all one package. In Psalm 95, the first six or seven verses are spent with that wonderful, fantastic psalm about come, let us worship before the Lord our God, our Maker. Let us kneel before Him. Let us worship and bow down and kneel before the Lord our God, our Maker, that 1980s song repeated. But then comes the last part of that particular chapter, which says, Today, if you have heard the voice of the Lord, do not harden your hearts as Israel did when passing through the wilderness. That seems completely out of place. The early church, the New Testament writers, understood that this reflected right back to Jesus, that our worship was supposed to take care of our hardened heart. 
that our worship was supposed to redirect our cravings, that your worship was supposed to take everything that had piled up in the week and was supposed to strip all of that off, kind of like Coca-Cola, taking care of all of the rust on that bolt on my vehicle that I can't seem to get undone. So that it goes something like this. You have choices of either worshiping or following your own cravings, of kneeling before the Lord your God, your Maker, or giving in to the rebellion that took place in the Old Testament. Rebellion, Pastor Bruce, don't you think that's a little strong? I'm just interpreting the psalm for you. You can decide whether or not you want to follow it. Some will want to add that when you follow God, God will give you your cravings. I say that it should not really be our focus at all. shouldn't be our concern. If we're following Him instead of our own cravings, whether we ever get those desires and cravings should somehow melt away in our following of Him. And if you are following Jesus as an intermediary step to putting a Mercedes Benz in your driveway, there's something wrong with that picture. I know that if you came into my office and wanted to talk for an hour or so once a week or even five minutes once a week in hopes that somehow you could get a Mercedes Benz out of it, I would start to have the secretaries filter you out. I would tell you, no, you got the wrong office. Stop next door. Pastor Paul is giving away Mercedes Benz. <laughs> you would kind of do the same thing, wouldn't you? You know, if you discovered, young lady, that that boy who asked you to homecoming or to the prom did so only because there was something, an end game, and he didn't care about you at all, how would you feel about that one? That wouldn't work out very well for you. The same goes true that if my desires for God are there only because I can get something out of it, there's something wrong with that picture. The point ought to be to turn our cravings heavenward because that's what worship is supposed to be. Can Jesus really be first in Christmas? Only if you turn your cravings toward Him in worship, if you threaten your own cravings by turning them toward Jesus, then and only then can Jesus really be first in your Christmas season. If you allow other things to rule and reign your Christmas season, they will do that. And in the process, you will fulfill your own cravings, and yet you will have threatened the very existence of Christ in your own heart. Which, of course, brings me to that wonderful question of can I still eat mom's fudge or not? I know that this is an important question of great theological importance and I understand the gravity and weight of the matter. I'm sorry, it was a bad pun unintended. I would tell you, well, once you get beyond the fact that you're not probably going to fast on Christmas Day, You're probably going to eat and you're probably going to do so heartily, as is our tradition, to feast. Once you get beyond the fact that it's possible to feast and celebrate Christ at the same time, I'd say, yes, go ahead and eat the fudge, but realize it's not Christmas. The turkey, it's not Christmas. No, really, dried, no, that's not not Jesus. That fruitcake, I'm not sure God's in that at all. I don't know what is in it, but I'm pretty sure Jesus is not. Look forward to something that involves worship on Christmas. Look forward to coming here and watching a couple of people be baptized in water. Rearrange your gift wrapping, really, Aunt Yo-Yo's potato salad and Aunt Matilda's fruitcake. It can all wait. It'll still be there. Fruitcake isn't going anywhere for six months. Just leave it there. Really, will anything be lost if you say, I'm going to make Christmas about worship? 
Am I just trying to sell a Sunday morning service? Of course not. If there's just, if there's just five families here, because four of us are on staff, <laughs> we will join together on Christmas Day and we will have a wonderful time. I'm telling you this because I think it will do you some good in your spiritual life, and that is my job. To try to redirect you, if I can, from your own cravings on Christmas Day back to Jesus. To say that it's really all about worshiping Him. What a magnificent day to be baptized in water. Well, I, if you are afraid that your kid might be just a little on the young side and might not remember it when they're older, baptize them on Christmas Day or on Easter Sunday. They're not likely to forget the Sunday morning they went up, they got up, they waited to open their presents so they could be baptized in water and then open their presents. They aren't going to forget that anytime soon. What a great celebration. I'm so glad that it's there in my life this year. Look forward to something beyond that Christmas feast and make it somehow about Jesus. Right before you dig into the turkey, retell the Christmas story or add some sort of tradition if it's not there in your family so that all of those cravings point back to Jesus somehow so that you realize when you're opening an iPad for Christmas. Oh, that would be really kind of nice, wouldn't it? When you're opening an iPad at Christmas, realize that the iPad is just a thing. It will be outdated within a year because Apple will introduce the next, the next generation of iPads. And when that happens, yours will be outdated and then you'll need another one next year. But Jesus isn't going anywhere. He's never going to be up. You know, there is no Jesus 2.0. The first version was good enough and you can't top that first version. It's there. And your worship of Him is really all that matters at Christmas time. Your worship, in fact, saves Christmas. It's not Mary Lou who who saves Christmas. It's your worship that saves Christmas. And it really isn't the Grinch who steals it. It's your cravings that steal Christmas. And in order to save them, you have to turn those cravings back to Jesus. I'm not saying that eating fudge is like Herod wanting to kill baby Jesus. Okay, that's a little extreme. Eating fudge is pretty calm compared to killing babies. I don't think anyone would compare the two. But I would say that both of them have at their root a craving. One that's really out of control and one that's a far more tame and really delicious. I just want Jesus to really be first in Christmas. And so to do that, you have to be like the wise men and not like Herod. Because if you are like the wise men at Christmas time, you will understand that it's all about worship. If you are like Herod, you will fulfill your own cravings. If you are like the wise men, you will understand that nothing is more important than bringing him gifts on Christmas time. If you are like Herod, you will want to have your own will fulfilled and your own wishes fulfilled. For the wise men, it was not about a list. For Herod, it was about fulfilling his own list on his own agenda and his own accomplishments. And if you want to be really truly a child of the king, you'll follow the example of the wise men and say, I will fulfill my own cravings by turning them back toward the king. And everything I desire, I will direct back toward the king. And I will want more than anything to worship the king at this, this year at Christmas time because the wise men truly saved Christmas through their own worship and their own desire to cast aside self-centeredness, self-fulfillment, self-gratification because all of those things threaten the true meaning and the true desires of Christmas. It is only when we participate in a conspiracy to make Christmas all about worship that we are able to take all of those cravings and set them aside those cravings 
things which threaten Christmas, which threaten the first Christmas, and say that it is in worship that I will change those cravings and point them back to Christ. And it is in worship that Christmas will truly be saved and Jesus will again truly be first in Christmas. Why? Because worship is our saying no to the identity that the world tries to press on me. Worship is my saying no to everything that the the weak has tried to press in upon me. Worship is my saying no to everything that others have tried to say that I am. Worship is my saying no to everything the commercials try to make Christmas into. Worship is my saying no to a life of, of parties and endless eggnog. Worship is my saying no to any of those things being fulfilling. Worship is my saying no to saying I will find my fulfillment in another gadget or in a cruise or in the latest toy or in someone's fudge or in a Buster Bar dessert. Oh my, that is like calories on a plate. Worship is saying yes to being God's child. It's saying yes to doing God's will. It's saying yes to God's love. It's saying yes to God's presence in your life. When we gather to worship together, we are renewing the yes and saying collectively again, no. No to the identity that has been thrust upon me by my past what people said I was or who people said that I am and I always will be. It is saying Jesus has a different answer and a different response. And if you want all of that, then direct yourself and worship to the King at Christmas time. Because worship is about saying yes to God's presence in your life. I worry about this nearly every year. Because I want God honoring holidays to honor God. I want Thanksgiving to really be about giving thanks. Not about another Packers victory. Though that's kind of sweet too, isn't it? I want, I want Christmas to be about worshiping the one who was born with the express purpose of dying. Most of us believe that we were born so that we could live. Jesus believed that he was born so he could die and then live again. And by being dead and then living again, we could die along with Him and then be raised up again. I don't want to feed the beast of my own desires. That beast which threatens all of those God-honoring holidays. I instead want to direct all of those things back to Him in worship and say worship is certainly not just a lifelong passion. It is my highest calling because it is only in worship that I will discover any kind of deliverance from all of those things that the, worship, that the world says I have to be. It is in worship that I truly discover the grace of the King as I pour out all that I am because of all that He is. My complete definition of worship is that simple. Worship to me is emptying, of pouring out all of who I am to, on the, for the sake of Christ because of all of who He is and what He has done. And to me, that is the heart of Christmas. It's understanding that I need to set aside all of my own cravings so that I can save Christmas. Because it points our cravings back to God. And it says about all of those other cravings, if left alone, they'll threaten and they'll destroy Christmas. However, if I redeem those, but through worship, it will be something different entirely. I hope that this is not just another sermon you know, the type that are preached every year that tells you to make, keep Christ in Christmas. Because I, I think you'd miss the point if that's what you heard. The point is not just to keep Christ in Christmas. 
The point is to threaten your own cravings in any area, in any aspect, in any avenue of your life, 365 days a year by worshiping the King. Worship is not just a slow song on Sunday morning. Worship is a lifestyle of saying, I will honor God in everything that I do. Worship is more than just a few songs and a few hands raised or hands clapped. Worship is something far more that happens throughout the entire week. Worship is something that I live in, not an, not an event that I go to. And a life of worship is a life that recognizes God for who He is, turns my cravings back toward Jesus, and makes Jesus the chief object of my desires. And so I would ask you this morning to look inside and ask yourself, is Jesus the chief object of your desires? Well, for those of you who say yes too quickly, just think about fudge again for a moment. Or any other craving you have at Christmas time. A new iPhone. Something more that my boat needs that it can't really handle. More fishing, more hunting. You know how much I really crave that, don't you? Six more hours of sitting there with a fishing line in the water catching nothing. Oh, I really crave that. But could you, but could you somehow elongate that, that screen so I could sit on my couch and watch a little bit more football and a little bit bigger screen? Oh, if that's your Christmas desire. I hope that you can find a way to worship when you're opening your screen, your screen at your, your new TV. And I hope that when you open that gift and it says, some assembly required. <laughs> Three words that were born in the pit of hell that are the opposite of God's desire. Oh, I get to assemble this gift. As much as dad may complain about the tie that he's not going to wear except for that one time to say thank you, at least you don't have to assemble it. You know how you could tell if dad really likes his gift? If the assembly that's required, he does while the rest of you are opening your presents. That's when you know he really liked it. If those things are what Christmas is about, if that's what your life is about, I feel sorry for you. Because you have truly threatened Christmas. And you've threatened your own spirituality because you've refused to make it about worshiping Him. You've refused to make your life a life that is pleasing and honoring to Him. Is Jesus really the chief object of your desires? I would ask you that question. For those of you who have walked with God now for many, many years, and those of you who maybe don't have a history of walking with God, is Jesus really the object of your desires? Is He the one whom you have lived your life for? Or is He kind of an add-on? Or is He not even a thought yet? Maybe you're still kicking the tires on Christianity trying to decide if that's what you really want. I will tell you that living a life of worship before God is the most fulfilling thing that you could ever possibly do or want to do. Fulfilling your own passions and your own cravings by living your life for Jesus Christ is the best thing that you could possibly do with your life. Well, don't take my word for it alone, though. Take the word of the Bible. Don't take just the Bible's word and my word. Take the word of all of those around you who you see who are perfectly normal, well-meaning people who have simply decided I'm going to turn my life over to Jesus and fulfill my cravings 
by worshiping Him. If that's you this morning, in just a moment, I'm going to give you a chance to make that commitment to Christ. Say, I want to turn my life's desires over to Him and point them back to Him. Because that's what I want my Christmas to be about. It's what I want my life to be about. It's what I want my desires to be about. I want my desires to be about following Jesus instead of my own agenda. And so if if that's you this morning, this Christmas time is the perfect time for you to say, I'm going to participate in this conspiracy and I'm going to make Jesus truly first this year. And I'm going to do that by making my life about worship. Would you close your eyes with me this morning as we conclude in prayer?